I'm Daniel Van Cleve. I'm the young adult pastor here at Great Hills. And on behalf of Dr. Danny Forshee, our lead pastor, I am excited about the opportunity uh, to share with you this morning. And so we are continuing our series for the one, for the one. And we're looking at the greatest biography ever written, and that is the biography of Jesus Christ. So why study Jesus? Why do we look at Jesus? John 14, 9, Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, if you want to see God, if you want to know the Father and make him known, the best way to do that is to look at his Son, is to look at Jesus. And so that's what we're doing this morning, is we're going into a sermon I've titled, Return to Sender. Now, some of you know and heard that phrase many times, others maybe not, but in 1962, Elvis Presley coined, wrote a song, produced a song entitled that same thing, Return to Sender. And it's about a man sending a letter to a girlfriend after an argument. Now, I feel like I look around, I see we have some Generation Z in the room, and I think I need to explain what a letter is. So here we go, guys. It, it looks a lot like this. It's, it, you take and you write your thoughts on a piece of paper with a pen or a pencil, and, and you fold it up and you put a stamp on it, adre address on the front, seal it, put it in the post, post office or your, your mailbox out front, throw the flag up. The postman will pick it up and take it to that person. It's the greatest thing ever, right? So this dude, Elvis sings this song, Return to Sender, this guy's he continues to write letters to his girlfriend, and she writes, return to sender, a lot like this. She writes, return to sender on her letter, and they keep, the letters keep coming back to him. And he refuses to believe the relationship is over, and so he just continues to send letters. I built houses in, in the past for many postmen and a postmaster, and I know that they despise seeing return sender. It is something you, they just don't like it. They don't like it at all because it means more work for them. It's also very costly. Did you know that in 2016, 6.8 billion pieces of mail were marked return to sender? Return it. it it's at the wrong address. It's undeliverable. 6.8 billion with a B. That's a whopping $1.3 million of cost to the U.S. Postal Service and ultimately comes to us. So why so many returns? Um, it's simple. That the, the, the mail makes it to the wrong place because of really simple things. Like, for instance, like missing or, or miswritten zip codes. Non-legible or illegible handwriting, right? Some of us have that issue. Street misspellings, missing data. Then there's the occasional mishap by the postman where he'll put it in the wrong box. People move a lot these days, and so it's up. They move, they go all over the place. And if they don't record the new address, then it, they, they'll send it to the wrong place. My wife and I, my family, have lived in Leander for over three years. We still receive mail to, addressed to the former homeowner. Even a couple of weeks ago, we received money. It was great. Open it up. We have money, but it was sent to the wrong address, and so we had to get that to the former homeowner so they could come and retrieve that. We are about to see Jesus say, return to sender this morning. 
we're about to see Jesus say, send it back. We're going to see he's in a confrontation between the government, the state, and between people, between his people. And in this conversation, confrontation, Jesus is facing a clever scheme to destroy him. And Jesus, in an ingenious manner, says, return to sender. Go back. All right, we're going to see that in just a second. Our text is Matthew 25. We'll start in verse 15 in just a second. If you have your copy of God's Word, you'll notice over this, this pericope, you'll probably see a title, something like Paying Taxes to Caesar, or you'll see Paying Taxes. But I, this is just not the context of this passage. Others believe it's Jesus teaching us how to dodge conflict or avoid conflict, but probably not. Many see um, this as a message on giving. We can see giving out of this. But I think Jesus this morning is clearly saying, return to God. Return to the one who sent you. So I want us to pause and I want us to pray this morning. I I want you to do something super bold. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes, and I want you to pray for you. Would you do that this morning? There are various types of people in different stages of life in this room and online. You bring all kinds of things to the table, problems, concerns, issues. And would you bow your head and consider, online, consider what would it mean for you to return in perfect fellowship to God this morning? What would it take for you? And are you interested in being in the right place with God? Pray. Ask God something like, Lord, speak to me. Just in the quietness of your heart, lean into him. Say, God, I want to hear from you this morning. Have I wound up on the wrong doormat? Am I in the wrong place in my life? This is a scary thing because the enemy, is de- he's a deceiver. And he can convince us that we are in the right place and we'd be in the wrong address. And Jesus says, return to God. Father, we lean into you this morning. We ask for you to speak to us. We are all in need of you, God. Some of us are more aware of that need than others. Lord, I pray for the member that's maybe seated here this morning and sat in that spot for 30 years. Lord, that they would not hear this message as a good message for their granddaughter or a great message for that neighbor. But Lord, that we would hear from you and and apply what you have to say to us to our lives. Lord, I pray the gospel be clear, speak to our hearts, and especially I'm just burdened for that someone that really believes they're okay. And they're deceived into thinking that life is good and don't need anything. But Lord, we know life is only good if it's lived for you, Lord. And so convict our hearts, move in this place, in my life, in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 22, uh, we will start in verse Uh, 15, if you'll read along with me. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him, Jesus, in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and that you teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, right? For you do not regard the person of men. That's a rough translation. What he's saying is, you're not impartial. They're trying to butter Jesus up. You're not impartial. You're not swayed by the appearance of man. You're not swayed by man's opinions. They're buttering him up. 15 or 17. Tell us 
therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness, and he said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose inscription, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled, and they left him, and they went their way. If you would grab your worship guide and pull out a sheet that looks something like this, and and locate your pen or pencil, I want you to take some notes, lipstick, mascara, whatever you can find, jot some things down because you will remember a lot more if you take a few notes. And I want you to write some things down. I want you to see a couple things in this passage the Lord has shown me. First of all, we see there's a plot to destroy Jesus. There are four players in this story. You have the Pharisees, you have the Pharisees' disciples, you have the Herodians, and there's Jesus. Now, the Pharisees are Jewish leaders. These are the religious people of that day, the church, if you will. Um, They hated Jesus. They could not stand Jesus, and they were always after him. He was their number one target. Now, Luke, in his, his copy of, of this, this passage, in his pericope, prior to this story, you see Luke telling us that they had just tried to seize Jesus. They had just tried to take him by force, and they couldn't get him. The Pharisees did not like Jesus. Um, Jesus um, repeatedly opposed them, and he used very colorful language to describe them, not very pretty things, such as, you pit of snakes. Who wants to be called a pit of snakes? Whitewashed tombs, murderers. He, he one time said they're twice as fit for hell as a heathen. Pretty harsh. Blockades of the kingdom of God. Hypocrites and liars. These Pharisees were opposed to Jesus and they could not stand the second people group that we see. They could not stand the Herodians. These were aristocratic Jews. There's lots of political unrest. They were rivals, if you will. So there's supercharged tension politically. These Herodians are active supporters of Herod. They're members of Herod's party. Um, this, this group, they favored Rome. And some even believe that they collected land tax um, for Rome. The Romans were cruel. They were pagan. They were opposed to the Lord. And the Pharisees felt often in submitting to Rome, they felt as if they were disobeying God. And so the Pharisees did not like the Herodians. The Herodians did not like the the Pharisees. But this would not stop them from coming together. They came together under one cause, one mission. Get rid of this Jesus. So verse 15, we see they took plot. They, They took counsel to lay a snare, to trap Jesus, to entangle him. They wanted to catch Jesus in his words. Now, this is typology, uh, or the anti-type of typology found in Psalm 2.2. In Psalm 2.2, we find that it was prophesied that the rulers will take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is going down right now. They're taking counsel. They're, trying, they're coming together. They're colluding to try to figure out how to take Jesus out of the equation. The Pharisees came up with a plan with the Herodians, sent their disciples to Jesus. Why? Probably to be unsuspecting. Probably so Jesus would not recognize them. They come to him, verse 16. They say, teacher, 
Again, they're buttering him up, trying to at least. We know that you're true. You're, you know, they call it faithful. You, you, favor, you don't favor men. He, they're, they're saying good things about him. But Jesus sees through it. They say, tell us, what do you think? Uh, what, do you, what do you think, Jesus? Here's the question. Brilliant trap right here. Look at it. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This is the question. Now, they're, they're posing a dilemma. They want to hang Jesus on it. Two nooses. A, they want a yes or a no. So either way, to pay taxes to Caesar would label Jesus a traitor to the Jewish cause. This would show support for the Roman overlords. Um, the Pharisees would say, Jesus is not a faithful Jew. And they would come after him. To say, don't pay taxes, would, would, would label Jesus uh, against Caesar. He, he, would, he would be guilty of treason. He would be a revolutionary. And um, so the plot of deception is really two nooses. Pay Caesar, get noosed by the Jewish leaders. Don't pay Caesar and be noosed by Rome or by the Herodians. Notice um, Jesus comes into them with a precise response in verse 18. He's aware of their malice. How is he aware? He's aware because he's God. He's omniscient. He knows all. 100% God, 100% man standing there. This separates Jesus from all other prophets. He's not a prophet. He's God in the flesh. And he's standing there in front of them, and he perceives their wickedness. He sees their plot. He calls them hypocrites, rightly, because they pretended to genuinely want an answer, but they didn't want the answer. They wanted to slip a noose over his head. They wanted to take him out of the picture. Jesus responds, not with a yes or no answer. He says, show me the money. Verse 19, Jesus says, show me the tax money. Show me the coin. Now, that coin they showed him was a denarius. It's about a day's wage. There's a, there'll be a pic on the screen of this denarius. This is a, what it looked like. Uh, Emperor Caesar is on the coin. Quite a face, so we're not going to leave it up there long. We don't want to scare the children. This guy is rough, rough, rough. So Jesus did not implicitly answer them, but he said, show me the coin. Whose image, notice, Acon in the, in, the, in the Greek, whose image, whose inscription, epigraphe, whose letters are inscribed on this coin is his question. And they responded, Caesar's. It's, it's Caesar, Jesus. Caesar's image and inscription is on this coin. Jesus' answer was brilliant, and it stunned his critics. He said, render to Caesar, verse 21, the things which are Caesar's. Render to God the things which are God. Render. Um, a, a lot of Bibles will say give to Caesar, and, and that's a bad translation. In the Greek, it literally says apodidomi, which is to give back. It's to return something. It's to send back that which belongs to Caesar, that which belongs to God. And so number one in your notes, if you'll take, take this down, obey the government. Jesus is, is validating the state here. But he says, obey the government inside the realm of God's ordinances. Pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. Obey authority. Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. I'm a picture guy. I'm a visual guy. So on the screen is a little simple little, little visual I came up with for you. This is what supreme authority looks like. It's God. He covers it all. And inside of that authority, 
is, is the government, is the state. And God is saying, I set authority in place. Jesus said it as well. When being confronted by Pilate in John 19, 10, Pilate said, don't you know I have authority to take your life? And Jesus says, no, you don't. You have no authority. He says, you don't have no power. You have no power over me unless it were given to you from above. God is supreme authority. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him. This changes the way we look at our government. Whether we agree with them or not, we are to respect. And the greatest way to respect authority is to pray for them. I don't have to agree, but I pray. There's a way to disagree. And I think our generation today needs to learn something about that. Needs to learn how to disagree respectfully. But anyway, that's another sermon. If Jesus had stopped right here, um, he would have pleased, the, the, he, he would basically, the Jews would have him. They would slip that noose over him, but we have this conjunction Render to Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and additionally, render to God the things which are God's. This might be um, a caption for the entire meta narrative of Scripture. Render to God, this is the call on my life, render to God the things which are God's. Now, number two in your notes, render your life to God. Let's ask the question found in verse 20. They asked who, Jesus asked whose image and whose inscription is on the coin. Well, who bears God's image and God's inscription? You ever thought about that? Who bears God's image? A monkey? No. Kitty cat? No. You and I, mankind, are the only creature created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female. He created them. What does it mean to bear God's image? What does it mean to be created in God's image? The Imago Dei, many hundreds of books have been written on this. Does it mean that we have the ability to reason, to rationalize like God? Does it mean that we have God emotions or, or moral accountability? Do we share God's attributes? Do I look like God in essence? Well, let's find out. Do I, do I share the attributes of God? I want to give you eight that I stole from Dr. Bingham at Southwestern, one of the greatest, most amazing professors ever. Um, eight attributes. Um, and let's see if any of these resemble you and I. Ready? These are not in your notes. So if you want to flip over and take them down, I'm going to give them to you quick. Y'all listen faster, okay? Number one, God is eternal. God has no age, no beginning or end. He's the God of ages. He's not limited by time. He's immortal. He does not taste death. Does that look like me? No, it doesn't. Number two, God is omniscient. God has unending knowledge. He knows everything. Romans eleven thirty three. 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judge, judgments. How inscrutable his ways. God is omniscient. I'm not. Are you omniscient? You know everything? It doesn't look like us, does it? God is immutable. Number three, God is immutable. He's always the same. He's incapable of change. He's complete. Nothing can be added to him. He's changeless. 
Hebrews 13, 8. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3, 6. I, the Lord, do not change. I change. Um, I've changed quite a bit in 24 years. Today, May the 20th, 1994, 24 years ago, I asked that adorable, cute-looking redhead right there on the second row to marry me. You know what she said? Yes! Like that, something like that. I'm pretty sure that's the way it went down. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. But I have changed in the past 24 years. I change. God does not change. And she says a hearty amen to that because she's glad. She's glad. All right. Work in progress. Number four, I'm not omnipresent either. God is omnipresent. Now, Dr. Bingham will tell you and prove to us that that doesn't mean God is everywhere. It means that God can accomplish his will from anywhere. All right? No creature is hidden from his sight. Hebrews 4, 13. He's omnipresent. I'm not. Number five, God has divine aseity. God needs nothing from you and I. This is humbling. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need a thing from us. And we see that he is needless and his needs are completely met in and of himself. This is our God. Acts 17, 25, nor is he served by human hands. Six, he's omnipotent. God has the power to do anything. He is all-powerful. Nothing is too hard for him. Daniel 4, 35, he does, his, he does according to his will, not my will. He's omnipotent. I'm not all-powerful. It doesn't look like me. Number seven, God is omnibenevolent. God is omnibenevolent. He is not a form of love. He is love. Everything God does is good, and everything God does is love, period. This is God. 1 John 4 tells us he's love. We see in Romans 5, 5 through 8, God is pouring out his love on mankind. And can I just pause right here and tell you I need his love because I was created behind Adam. And my great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy, Adam, stood in the garden when God said, don't eat of that tree. You can do anything else you want to do in the garden, but of that tree over there, don't eat. And what did Adam do? Adam went and ate of that tree. And when Adam ate of that tree, sin entered the world. And death, because God said, if you eat of this tree, death is coming. And death came. And every child born after then is born into this sin nature and is born wicked, sinful, right? And, and, and this sin separates us from God. It, it, mankind is, is estranged from a holy God that created us with intent for us to bring glory and praise to him, to enjoy and to rule dominion over the earth, and yet we cannot fellowship with him because of this sin issue, because God hates sin and he cannot come around it. And so what he did to solve this problem is to send Jesus And this is a beautiful story of love. The love story is that God of heaven sent Jesus to die on the cross for me and you. 
Jesus, uh, born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, walked amongst men, took a tree. Nobody took his life. He willingly stretched his hands out, nailed to this cross, and he gave his life for you and I. This is love. When love spoke, he said, to Telestai, paid in full, he's saying, I took Daniel's sin and everybody else's sin, and he was buried, rose on the third day, brought victory. The Bible tells me my sin is as far as the east is from the west, and if you check it out, they don't intersect. God took my sin away, and because of that, I can have fellowship with him if I trust and believe and obey. Say, so what does that mean? Glad you asked. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it's by grace, it's a gift. It's by grace that we have eternal life. We're saved through faith, through trusting faith in him. It's not anything that I do. It's not what I do. It's what he did. My part of it is to trust him. My part of him is to return to him every day that which I have taken from him. My part in this is to surrender. This is my part in the salvation story is to trust and obey him, lean into him and listen to him. What's God telling us this morning? Where are we at in our relationship with him? What a love that would die for people like me. I can't get over it. I sing of it this morning. God, you're so good. You know what I think about? I think about my sin. I think about my sin and I realize that I should be doomed in an eternity called hell. But I don't have to have, I'm not going there. You know why? Because Jesus saved me. And because I've placed my trust and faith in him. Would you do that this morning? Surely in a crowd this big online, maybe you're listening and, and, and you've never transferred your trust to Jesus. Can I tell you, you don't need an altar to do that up here. You can do it right where you're seated. You can do that across the world. You can, you can lean into Jesus right now. You can talk to God. If, if, if he's calling you to salvation and say, God, I surrender to you. I give my life to you. I, tra- I, I realize my sin has separated, and I realize that I need a Savior. I need a bridge in that gap that, that you, would, you would rescue me. Would you take and forgive my sin? And I'm transferring my trust to you. Give your life to Jesus. If you haven't done that, don't wait to the end of the service. Do it now. Do it now. Now come at the end of the service and, and tell us about it. I'd love to hear about your story and tell you about some next steps. This altar is going to be open in a few moments. And, and you can come. You can come and pray by yourself. You can come and pray for somebody else. You can come and, and, and be met and encouraged and strengthened here. But by all means, um, surrender to the one who gave it all for you, God demonstrated his love on that cross. He loves, he loves you. He loves you, but he loves us too much to leave us where we are. And he says, return to me. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes, whoever trusts in him will not perish, but we ha- will have eternal life. He's omnibenevolent. Number eight, and finally, God has uh, divine impassibility. He cannot be manipulated. He cannot be moved to do something that is not his will. Um, None of these attributes describe me completely. Luther says that all aspects of the image of God in humans has been corrupted. What is left is a relic or a remnant of the image. Not certain qualities, but fragments. Since the fall, he's saying, since, since the fall... 
since man sinned in the garden, um, that image is tainted. It's, it's a mess. We've become damaged goods, and this is why we need a Savior. Millard Erickson says this. You might want to write this down. The image is the exercise of dominion. When God says you're created in his image, he's saying it, it's the exercise of dominion. As God is the Lord, and I quote, the Lord over all of the creation, Millard Erickson here, humans reflect the image of God by exercising dominion over the rest of creation. The image of God is actually an image of God as the Lord. Uh, write down uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Look it up later. But we see God communicating here that he's going to restore this damaged image, and he's going to even build upon it. Romans 8.29, he predestined those he foreknew to be conformed into the image of his son. I see God chipping away at Daniel with a chisel and a hammer, and he's, he's making something great. It's coming. It's happening. That's the image. Um, two things with um, your blank for whose inscription is on our lives. Finally, whose inscription is the blank? Two verses there, and I'm going to um, give you two other things and a story, and we're going to close. Whose inscription is on our lives? Jeremiah 31, 33. God says, I put my instructions deep within them, and I will write on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Hebrews 10, 16 says, This is a new covenant. I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their heart, and I will write them on their minds. The big idea is here is God is saying, you're my coin. You're my image. You bear my image in my inscription. Give back to me that which belongs to me. Everything belongs to God, but he's precise here, very, very specific. Give me back the thing that bears my image. Give me back the thing that bears my inscription. Return to sender. We have been sent here, life on earth, um, by God to accomplish a certain plan. How's that going for us? Have we found ourselves in the wrong place? How do we find ourselves at the wrong address? The question I would love for you to answer is this. What would it look like for you to return to the Lord? What would it look like for you to give your life back to God or to give your life to God. Two things and then a story and we'll close. I believe, number one, this is not in your notes, but I believe we need to identify misplaced devotions. Misplaced allegiances creep into our lives. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. We should have nothing over him. And, and often... Things slip into our lives that we, we label and give importance over God. Relationships, all these things. Diedrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. Our hearts have only room for one all-embracing devotion. When God has our heart, the locus of our being, he has everything. Finances are not the issue this morning. It's not. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Jesus said, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So throw, throw the, the tomato at Jesus. He said, you're he's basically saying, if I want to figure out who, who your loyalties and where your devotion is, I can look at your checkbook ledger. What are you writing your money to? Where's it going? There's the devotions. 
There, there's, there's the things that he, it's where your treasure is. And, you know, I think about um, verses, blessings in so many. Give and it shall be given. God blesses givers. That's what we're called to do. That's what he demonstrated is giving. He came and he gave, the, paid the ultimate price for us. You know, we have about 78.74 years on this earth. In the United States of America, we live about 78.74 years. Let's round it to 79. That's a small price to pay um, for an eternity in glory. That's a small cost for an eternity in hell. It's serious where our heart is. He says, don't store it for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Be about the kingdom that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 6.38. This is how we reach Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his initiative, his right living, and all those things will be added. Another beautiful, beautiful promise. Identify misplaced devotions. And finally, accept our job description. We have a call, and I think it's to know God and to make God known. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we are ambassadors for Christ, making God, actually, making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're ambassadors. We represent another kingdom, God's initiative, God's kingdom. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself. Take up, a, take up the cross and follow me. You know, I think about um, Luke 15 and this initiative for leaving the one. I think we'll never, we can never reach the one until we leave the 99. And that's such a hard thing to do. It's so hard to let go and to let God. It's so hard to to park my agenda and park my, the things that I want to do. And really my part of reaching the one, my part of sharing the gospel is getting out of the way. When I get out of the way in my heart and I return to the Lord, where I'm supposed to be in my life, he sends those opportunities every time. Now some of you will be shocked to hear that I am a staunch introvert. Very much. I tell people that all the time, or when I tell them, they don't believe me. I would rather be alone. I mean, that's just kind of how it is. I'm sorry. I love you, but not that much. I would prefer to be. I'm just serious. That's just the way it is for me. I'd rather be alone. But I don't, I don't let that dominate me. I can't. It's not what I've been called to do. Yeah, that's my preference. I had lunch with somebody every day this week. One day I had two lunches. Just had more people to meet with than we had time for. Can't let that get in the way. You know, one of the easiest ways to reach the one I believe that I see is to invite someone to church. They're going to hear the gospel when they come to Great Hills Baptist Church. Invite someone to come here. One of the easiest ways to invite someone, and I do it every week, hey, I'd love to invite you. Come and have waffles and Starbucks coffee. People will come to that. And I tell them like this at the top of the escalators, did you know this? Every week, every Sunday morning, we serve a little three-cent waffle. Nothing in that little thing. But people flock to it by the hundreds, and they come up. Come on, join us. 
Um, thanks so much to our waffle shop manager, Miss Robin Kreitz and Jesse. They serve so well in our young adult classes that week after week rotate in and out. They're busy. They were hopping this morning. They were serving them, slinging them right and left. Such a great thing. But people will come to that. But when I'm, I'm pursuing the one, when I'm going at, when I'm obeying, I, I don't see my job as a duty. I see it as an opportunity. I have an opportunity to represent God well. Am I representing him well? I hope so. I can do better. I really can. Um, Another thing I'll mention too, a lot of you are, you totally get this and and you're, you're tearing it up. You really are. Did you know that we have people that VBS, they've literally taken off work, taken vacation to come and to serve. What a beautiful thing. By the way, VBS is in 36 days, record numbers of students. I think we're top side of 470 already, and we're over a month out. That's crazy. God is sending because he knows we are saying yes to be a part of what he's doing. That's it. God is sending more and more kids. He's saying Great Hills is getting serious about it. The people are serving. They're obedient. They're going after the one. I'm going to bless their socks off. And that's the way I see it. I think God is doing an incredible thing. By the way, if you, maybe you go to work at 10, you can come at 9 or come at 8. You can serve for an hour or two every day or three days. Let us know. There's flexibility. You don't have to come and stay for the whole, whole time. But sign up. Let, let Miss Sharon, let Teresa know we need help for VBS, and we are not sending kids away. We're hunkering down for the one, right? Maybe your one is one of those little tots that sign up that you'll get to see give their life to Jesus this week. Let me close with a story. Um, this, this story is a story I heard years ago about an African village that was under tremendous drought. And this African village on top of this drought, they, their cl- crops were suffering terribly. But they, be, they became ravaged by this migrating troop of monkeys. The monkeys swept through, cute little guys, but they were just annihilating their crops. And so they tried everything. They set up guards and scarecrows and built fires. They even armed guards, but they could not stop them. They were too fast. They were too slippery. These monkeys just come in and just wipe them out and just crop after crop after crop. After trying everything, they asked a wise old man, they said, what do we do? What do we do? And he says, bore a hole, drill a hole about the size of the monkey's hand in a log bore a bunch of them and waller it out at the bottom and drop some seeds in that hole or drop that thing that monkey likes in there, which was seeds. So they put those fruit seeds in the bottom of a bunch of holes all over outside around their crops. And the next morning there were dozens of monkeys caught because what they would do is the monkey reaches into the hole, grabs the seeds and it enlarges the fist and they can't pull it out and they will not let go. The monkeys don't know that to be free, they just have to let go and pull their hand out. These monkeys became prisoners of that which they desired. They grabbed those things, that thing they wanted, they thought was the best thing for them. And it became their prison. Freedom. Freedom comes at letting go and letting God. Letting go, freeing yourself. Let go. 
Return to the Lord. Return to God. Bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to give you a time to respond this morning. The altar in just a moment will be open. Would you send back to God the letter, the mail, which has found its way to the wrong address? Return to sender, the locus of your heart, that which God formed for great purposes and great plans. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to turn to the Lord. You've never given your life to Jesus. There will be counselors at the front, pastors at the front. We would love, it would make our day to talk to you about your decision to give your life to Jesus. Don't leave this place. The greatest decision you'll ever make is to surrender to Jesus Christ. The greatest decision. Maybe you'll come this morning and you're praying for the one. The altar will be open. In obedience, you're just reaching out and saying, I am going to be about that opportunity, Jesus. And you're responding in obedience this morning. Maybe this morning your response is dedication, rededication. You've been in an address or a place that is wrong. It's, it's not the right doormat. And you're saying, God, this morning, I'm, I'm coming to you. Would you help me? He rescues the perishing. He rescues the obedience. And our, when we say, God, we need you, he rushes to that. Maybe this morning you want to join. You want to place your membership here. You want to get on that rotation for the Discover Great Hills in June. Then you come, you obey God. I'm going to pray for us, and we are going to... Um, altar is going to be open. Father, thank you so much for being a gracious God. It is your kindness. It's your kindness that draws us to repentance. It's your grace, unmerited favor, and you have lavished it on us. Lord, may we not trample that grace. Lord, forgive us for disobedience and for being in the wrong places from time to time. And I just pray this morning for that person that's on the edge of their seat and they know inside their heart that they've been far from you. Would you bring them home this morning? Would they see your arms wide open? Would they see your grace, your mercy at repentance, at obedience? And as we return our lives to you, God, be glorified. We praise you. We worship you in Jesus' name. Stand to your feet and you obey God as the guys lead us.